Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. But God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding, His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life, it's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious, think well, advance good. This is Q. Welcome to this week's Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. I'm Paul Perot. We're continuing to do a sort of pandemic post-analysis. What happened? What decisions were made? What were the effects? How can we better prepare for a pandemic in the future? What you'll hear this week is a continuation of a set of conversations, Gabe, you had back in April at the Culture Summit in Nashville. On our last show, we heard parts of two talks, and again, we'll hear portions of two more conversations, Gabe, you had, asking some pretty hard questions of those you had with you on stage, because... Being curious and asking questions is so important at this time. Now, last time we heard from Dr. Francis Collins of the National Institutes of Health, which led much of the COVID fight here in the U.S., but we heard as well from Harvard epidemiologist Dr. Martin Kuldorf, who had a different medical perspective on the fight against COVID. But Gabe, after those two, you kept on going with two more conversations. Tell us about them. We then talked to a journalist, Alex Berenson, to describe over the last year what's happened in journalism. Why is it that we don't know who to trust anymore? Why are there multiple versions of it seems to be the same story? And we're all trying to sort through that. So we wanted to be curious and try to understand what's happening with the science. How does it apply to every single one of these issues from lockdowns to the mask to vaccines, etc.? And then we also talked to Naomi Schaefer Riley. She's a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and she focuses on issues regarding child welfare. And we wanted to understand from her what has been the impact on our kids? What has been the impact on the most vulnerable because of the policies that we've put in place over this last year? As Christians, we must be concerned with the common good. We have to care about human flourishing. We have to ask the difficult questions. And our governments don't get a pass when they don't make the right decisions or when we do see fallout taking place from policies that have been put in place. We have to question that. We've done that for years. And at this particular event, we wanted to think well about this because we know if there is another pandemic, if there is a future policy decision to be made, we have to learn now so that we prevent more problems in the future. Exactly, Gabe. Now, we have a lot to listen to today, so let's get right to that excerpt of Gabe's conversation with journalist Alec Berenson. Our goal here is to ask the questions. We don't know where the answers might go, but we got to ask, we got to dig in, we got to think. Um, I think as we move into this next conversation, it's going to be around truth in journalism. I think one of the effects of this last year is it started to expose that we don't know where to go. We don't know who to trust. You can have two doctors that are at the highest esteemed levels in our society have some varying opinions on certain data, certain science, certain reporting. There's content coming at us from a hundred directions and we don't know who to trust. And so for this next conversation, I've invited a journalist to come be with us to talk about what's happened in media, what's happened in journalism. Who can we trust? How does it relate to some of the stories that have been developing over this last year? His name is Alex Berenson. Alex was a New York Times reporter for a decade. During that time, one of the things he did cover was pharmaceuticals and drug companies. 
He understands this world of journalism more than most. He became a nonfiction writer and has also written several um, fiction books and novels as well. But over this last year, he found himself not being able to stay away from journalism, not being able to stay away from this first love of trying to report truth, trying to report the facts, trying to help people better understand what is happening around us. And so I've invited him here today for us to have more of a conversation about journalism and the facts from this last year. So would you join me in welcoming Alex Berenson? Alex, welcome. Uh, let's just start with the elephant in the room here on journalism. What happened to journalism? Uh, what, what Donald Trump happened to journalism? Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, I think there was a move towards more open partisanship uh, even before him, but his, uh, you know, his election elevated or escalated that process, accelerated that process. Look, it was very hard to cover him. I think he did tell a lot of falsehoods, but the the you know, the response of the media to be very aggressive about him and, 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 and oftentimes to pick on things he or people said in his administration that weren't, you know, intentionally false, but that might have been mistakes in a way that they never would have before, I think was a mistake. I think in general, it's, you're better off allowing, you know, public leaders of any stripe to make their case. And, uh, you know, you can put facts in your story that, that or, or have people in your story, uh, you know, contradicting them. Yeah. But when you openly cross the line to say, uh, you know, this person is lying, this person is lying, it's hard to walk back from that. And you run the risk of being seen as partisan. Or maybe you don't run the risk. Maybe you want to be seen as partisan. Maybe that's what your audience wants. Yeah. Another major thing that happened in journalism and has happened in the last 20 years is that the Times and other places moved from more of an advertising-supported model to a subscription model. And in the old days, there was fear that advertisers would sort of dominate coverage and you couldn't say anything bad about them. Uh, you know, the Times didn't really have that problem because if, you know, Bloomingdale's didn't want to advertise, it was just too bad for Bloomingdale's. It turns out uh, that in reality, it's a lot harder to stand up to your subscribers when 98% of them feel one way, yeah. which is sort of what the Times has become and what the Washington Post has become. Um, and so there's a, there's a tendency to give... Uh, those readers what they want. Yeah, there's a built-in bias. There's a, yes. And you're starting to understand that from these different institutions. Kind of what their take is. You're getting the facts. You're getting a little bit of opinion. The stories that are being told maybe are slanted towards their readers. Um, when, I, when I worked there, which was 99 through 2010, look, uh, you know, there's an old line, and it's true about journalism, that the job of journalists is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So, you know, story selection might have reflected that. It might have reflected sort of a, you know, a New York liberal view of the world. But our job was to go out and report the stories accurately, write them in an unbiased way, and give the people, you know, especially if it was going to be an investigative piece, who we were talking to a chance to respond. Yeah. A lot of that's gone out the window. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and, and there's just this, sort of this move towards openly, uh, you know, trashing people. I, for the most part these days, I know, you know, look, I know that a lot of my colleagues hate me now, and I insist on either live interviews or everything done over email because I'm quite aware that they will try to trash me. Yeah. I actually, you know, with The Atlantic, which wrote a piece about me. Yeah, they uh, called you the uh, pandemic's the, wrongest man. The pandemic's man. wrongest man, yes. Coming from them, that's a compliment. Um, uh, um, so, you know, that piece actually ran April Fool's Day, which was fitting. But, I, you know, I sort, I, sort of a, I sort of trusted them that, you know, here, they said, here are our questions. I said, okay, I'll answer them. They then went to other people to try to sort of demolish my answers. They never came back to me and said, 
here's what people are saying. Do you have a response to this? In, I would never have done that as a reporter for the New York Times. That is journalistic malpractice, yeah. but it's now standard practice. So over this last year, you did cover the pandemic. You've covered it daily using Twitter pretty much as your main outlet to get stories out, many times linking to stories, to research studies, to all kinds of data um, where you can see that journalistic tact coming out. What is it, as you've looked at this last year, I mean, there's so many things about COVID that have been debated. You've heard two doctors talking about it. From the journalist perspective, um, I want to get into some of the specifics sure. because you've dug into all these. So let's just bring up all of them. Sure. Uh, the first origins of this virus. Uh, sure. Was so, it bat? You know, does this come from a bat? Did it come from a laboratory? We saw Robert Redfield, former CDC director. People seem to now start to come around to this different idea but journalists didn't seem to want to touch that. That's right. So I would just, um, I'd contradict you on one thing, which is Twitter's been a very good avenue for me and an outlet for me, but I've written four booklets, um, which are really traditional journalism, uh, which together are almost 30,000 words, which is, you know, not, not quite a book length. The first one is about uh, how we count deaths. The second one is about lockdowns and sort of the evidence for and against them and the history of them. The third one is about masks and whether or not they work. And then the newest one, which is arguably the most controversial one of all, is about vaccines and the mRNA vaccines. So in, on Twitter, there is a tendency sometimes, and I unfortunately share it too, you can be sarcastic and snippy at times. I try not to engage in repeated back and forth arguments with people, but sometimes it does happen. The booklets are much more traditional journalism. And, and you know, I think if you want to know what I really think about this, yeah. you need to read those. But to, yeah. go, to go back to your question, so the, the scientific consensus came out last March somehow that this couldn't possibly, that the coronavirus couldn't possibly have been the result of, a, of either a lab accident or intentional, you know, behavior by the Chinese. It had to have come from an animal, probably a bat, possibly a bat, and then, you know, so, uh, another species, a so-called zoonotic transmission than to humans. And the Lancet, which is a, you know, esteemed journal, wrote a long piece about this that basically said, it can't be true that it, uh, you know, that was a lab accident, so no one can talk about this. There are many problems with saying that. Here are three. We're more than a year out from this, and from the emergence of SARS-CoV-2, and no one has come up with any animal reservoir. There's been no evidence of, of, a, of an animal that was infected with SARS-CoV-2 or something very, very much like it that could have transmitted this to humans. When the original SARS came out, they were aware, the Chinese very quickly found out where, uh, the, what the animal host was, and they demonstrated it in a variety of ways. We haven't been able to do that. Two, one of the world's leading labs for researching bat coronaviruses is in Wuhan. Yet somehow that makes no difference to anybody who says that the lab, you know, that the lab accident theory is wrong. Yeah. Three, this virus, when it emerged and became, you know, infected humans, appears to have been almost optimized to infect human lung tissue. So why, how did that happen? And why is it that we can't find viruses sort of a generation or two generations up that would demonstrate intermediate steps? Um, there are other issues yeah. as well. But I, I would just say this. You asked your, so to go back to the question of journalism. Last year, some people were talking about this. In fact, Tom Cotton, the senator from Arkansas, was talking about it. We were all called conspiracy theorists. You're a conspiracy theorist if you even say, not if you say, hey, the Chinese did this to, you know, to hurt everybody, but just this could have been a lab accident, and the most likely lab is in China. Well, why was that discussion closed off? 
And what damage has it done that more than a year has gone by before we're allowed to actually raise the question? Yeah. All right, let's talk about vaccines, something less controversial <laughs> um, that you've written about and we've talked about already today. But, but what is your take on the vaccines, the mRNA vaccine, its newness? How, should we trust it? What are you seeing in so, the data? So, in the so Dr. Collins said that this has been in development for 25 years. That's a very, very generous way to describe development. The mRNA vaccines were never tested in humans, I believe, before 2015. There was no testing. Here's, here's the history of mRNA, okay? People understood the, the potential value of this technology for a long time. They couldn't figure out how to get it to human beings into their cells in a way that wouldn't kill them. Okay, that was the problem with mRNA. And so in, in the last 10 years, we've made a move towards, there's something called lipid nanoparticles. They're tiny little globs of fat. You put, you, you sort of, you, it's very complicated, but you get the mRNA inside this lipid nanoparticle. Then you can inject it into people and their immune systems don't go completely crazy. And you can actually deliver the mRNA to the cell where it's supposed to work its magic. The problem is that even now, multiple injections of these cause uh, sort of cascading and worsening immune system reactions. That's why Moderna was not founded as a vaccine company. It was founded as a company that was going to make mRNA drugs for chronic conditions. They couldn't make that work. They switched to vaccines because vaccines are only supposed to need one or two shots to work. And, and by the way, when, when we ran these very large clinical trials, which was a good thing, it's the best thing that's happened in vaccine development, they show very, very clearly that the second dose is much worse for people. The side effects are significantly worse. That's clear both in the, you know, in the real world and in the clinical trials. What do you make of the VAERS data, the 3,400 reported uh, vaccination deaths? I, I, know. I, think, I think that's a very strong signal that should be followed. That's as many deaths, as many deaths have been reported to VAERS about the mRNA vaccines as in the previous 30-year history of VAERS for all other vaccines combined. That does not mean that the vaccines caused all those deaths, okay? What it does mean is that there is a risk that the vaccines caused some of those deaths. Have you been impressed with how J&J &J and AstraZeneca, the, the community, halted those? Well, I, look, it's good that that happened, but here's what uh, Dr. Collinson tell you. Those vaccines went through exactly the same 30,000 patient clinical trial process as the mRNA vaccines. Okay, and the, and the vaccine trials did not pick up this signal. The, the reason that this has jumped out is because it is so rare in the wild, thrombosis with thrombocytopenia, this blood clotting with low platelets phenomenon, that the companies could not argue that it was coincidence. For more common conditions, it gets harder and harder to pick up a safety signal. So in other words, if it's just a common stroke that these vaccines are causing, stroke is common enough that it's going to be very hard to pick up the signal even if thousands of additional people are dying from stroke. I'm not saying that we know that's happening. I'm telling you that that's a risk. And I'm telling you that when you go at warp speed, you do cut corners, okay? You do... You don't do the preclinical work that you would normally do. You're basically, what happened with vaccine development last year was the companies and the, and the governments all over the world decided they were going to depend on these clinical trials to pick up very rare signals. And if nothing showed up, okay, so be it. We've already seen a failure as far as that goes with the J&J &J and, and AstraZeneca vaccines. So far, there's nothing that's popped out with the mRNAs. That doesn't mean it's not there. It means it hasn't popped in the same way. All right, final question. The messaging seems to be on vaccines. Get the vaccine so we can get back to normal. That this is a requirement to get back to what you're describing as like life in Florida. 
it's pretty normal. And when you look at some of these states, comparisons like California to Florida, and you look at the charts, they seem to run pretty similar. One was locked down, one was not. So do you think we need to make this move? You're talking to 45%, a lot of white evangelicals who are hesitant about this. Do you think they should make that move to get back to normal? I think we should be normal now. I think we should all be living in Florida right now, okay? I think the churches should be open. I think the ballpark should be open. I think everything should be open, okay? And if you want to get vaccinated, look, my, my mom asked me if she should get vaccinated. I said, yes, she's 76 years old. She should get vaccinated. My kids are going to get this vaccine over my dead body, okay? Until we have some more data, all right? I'm in the middle. I'm 48. I don't really have any risks. I'm taking my chances with my immune system. I'm okay with that. I think this should be a personal choice. I don't think you should have to take a shot of a vaccine that's been around for approximately 13 months to get your rights back. Well, Alex, um, I think you just violated HIPAA regulations by telling us all about your vaccine decision. My mom's going to sue me. But, but um, Yeah, your mom. <laughs> but um, thank you. I know this conversation's... A tough one, and it doesn't make a lot of people happy to hear this conversation happening. I said at the beginning, we're going to have critical thinking. We're going to ask questions wherever they lead. And so I just appreciate your willingness to come, be a part of this conversation, share with us what you're learning, and we'll let people for themselves decide and, and figure out like where they land on it. Yeah, I, I mean, and by the way, this is a friendly audience for me. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but no, I, I, the data, you know, Dr. Collins is right. The data is out there. And go look at what the um, adverse events in the phase three clinical trials were for yourself. All right. Well, thank, let's thank Alex Berenson. Thank you. This is Q Ideas with Gabe Lines, and that was just a portion of Gabe's conversation with journalist Alex Berenson on how the media handled and mishandled the pandemic. If you'd like to hear the whole conversation, plus all the others from last week and this week, we'll tell you how to do that at the end of today's show. As we continue this COVID post-analysis, we looked at medical and public policy. We just had a look at media coverage. But what about the social cost on families? especially children. Let's listen to just a portion of Gabe's conversation with Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a child welfare expert with the American Enterprise Institute. And as you'll hear, last year was devastating on them. Um, What were some of the problems that existed before we went into a lockdown and then the lockdown exacerbated? Well, the problems that we face in child welfare in this country are very large. Uh, There are a lot of children who are living in families where they are not safe. Um, There's a lot of substance abuse in this country, and frankly, that crisis is driving our child welfare crisis. Uh, You're seeing children who are being uh, neglected in all sorts of ways, who are being left alone at very young ages, who are not being cared for physically, emotionally, um, and the lockdown has exacerbated all of those problems. Well, the lockdown idea was meant to be the public health intervention that actually helped, you know, save lives, helped people. When you look back on this last year, through your lens, as we look at children, did that happen? Well, I would say it, obviously, in the first place, no one knew what was going on. So last spring, you know, 
officials had to make all sorts of decisions about what seemed like the best course of action and the safest course of action. But what we learned uh, was that shutting down schools had the effect of creating a different danger for kids. Um, about at least 20% of the reports that come in uh, to child welfare hotlines are coming from schools. Um, another significant percentage of those are coming from pediatricians. Uh, so as children didn't have their well visits with their doctors and as children were not in schools, uh, the uh, uh, reports to child welfare hot hotlines went down ex extraordinary rates. Um, in New York City alone, they went down by more than 50%. Those are a lot of kids who are not being seen. And that's both in terms of, you know, are there services we could provide for these families? Are they getting food that they need? Uh, are they getting mental health counseling? If there's a substance abuse issue, are the parents able to access those services? Um, are children, you know, having access to the kinds of, uh, you know, health services that they need? You know, all, the, all these things which have to be weighed, those are safety and health concerns. COVID is not the only safe and healthy healthy concern. Yeah, and you've analyzed how this played out in education. And so many parents I know became homeschool parents instantly, had, had no ability or thinking they would ever do that. Um, and then they figured it out and they tried to learn how to do this. There was online learning. There was a lot that took place. But as you said, children stopped showing up at schools. They stopped showing up in these educational environments. What's been the loss? What, what's the impact? Can we measure that yet? Do we even know what the impact has been? We're starting to see as different states are coming out of lockdown, just to give you a couple of examples, at the beginning of the alphabet, um, Arkansas and Alabama, um, Arkansas and Alaska actually both uh, saw very large increases in the number of emergency room visits due to child maltreatment. So what happens is if you leave these issues for a long period of time unaddressed, they start to show up in more severe ways um, in our hospital settings. So I think you're starting to see that. A lot of people are predicting and we're already seeing an increase in need for foster families uh, in this country because so many of these issues, again, have gone unaddressed at a lower level that now it turns out they've escalated to the point where children need to be removed from their homes and we need to find foster families who are willing to take them in. Yeah, so now that children are back in schools, now teachers, doctors, people are starting to assess the situation and they're realizing abuse has been taking place. What are some examples of how we're seeing that play out? Well, I should say that there are still a lot of school districts, and unfortunately, they're some of the most vulnerable kids who are still not in school regularly right now, um, and who may not even be in school regularly in the fall. Um, and the most, I mean, we're seeing those in um, more often in majority minority communities. Um, black and Hispanic kids are less likely to be in school full time in person now than white children are. And so those are the most vulnerable families sometimes. So not, we've talked about, of course, the learning loss and the, the how those kids are falling behind. But the fact that they're not being seen and the fact that they're being isolated from their community is causing a great deal of problems. Yeah, I saw the stat recently. It's 1.5 billion children around the world that lost a year of education. Absolutely. Um, what are some of these other impacts that we're seeing uh, beyond just the education and the learning side? I know we're talking about the reports of abuse, but what are, what are some other factors that you've seen as you look back on this last year? You know, Communities not coming together, people not seeing one another. I mean, some of what I hear you saying is the value of the community is important. The value of coming together, of being present with other people um, is critical. And when we go into some sort of a lockdown situation, we're, we're cutting people off. We're isolating them. And then we lose touch. Yeah. And, and we might lose kids forever in that situation. 
the the isolation that uh, is coming to these children, especially you're seeing young children, adolescents, uh, higher rates of anxiety and depression among these young people. Um, you've seen some spikes in suicide, not necessarily overall rates in the whole country, but some shocking uh, data about you know young kids who are having uh, suicidal ideations. I mean, this this notion that we can keep these kids in their homes by themselves, not let them see their peers, um, at, especially at a stage, you know, I mean, I, I have a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old, the idea of like cutting them off from all their friends and imagining that there will be no effects on these kids. I mean, we know about the effects on adults, um, but when you sort of say to these kids, no, you're going you're gonna to stay in your home, you're going to stare at a computer screen all day for a year, for 14 months, for 16 months, and imagine that there will be no long-term psychological impact is crazy. Again, that was just a portion of the conversation Gabe had this past April at the Culture Summit with child welfare expert Naomi Schaefer-Riley. Gabe asked some hard questions as to what we've learned over the last year of the pandemic. And Gabe, for those there or those watching online as I did, they were hard but important discussions from differing viewpoints. I know it was a variety of opinions. There was a lot of back and forth. There was some disagreement. You could also see some alignment on this conversation. For us, we just want you to think well. We want you to have access to good information. We want you to hear from sources. And we want you to better understand how to investigate for yourself and learn how is it that you as a leader can respond. How can we be thoughtful? How can we have discourse? You heard Dr. Koldorf said, if science doesn't work, when we don't have open conversation. And that's one of the challenges of this moment, especially as we want to pursue good ideas, is we must be willing to take into account various opinions. We have to hear from different people so that we come to the best conclusions. That is our opportunity in a moment like this, is to learn from one another and to move forward with more wisdom. And so as you go forward, if you want to continue watching this particular talk, remember you can get that free trial on QMedia at QIdeas.org slash trial. And you'll have access not only to this talk, but many other talks that took place at the Culture Summit. Now, if you're interested in hearing all 40 talks from the Culture Summit and having access to that immediately, you can do that by going to qideas.org slash culture summit. You can see all the different speakers and topics that we address this year in our two-day event. And for $49, you can get instant access to that. Watch it with your small group. Watch it with those that you're spending time with this summer. There were so many amazing topics and conversations. The feedback we received as a team that this was the most compelling the best Q conference we've ever done. And so we're so thankful for that. And we hope this just continues to equip and help you as you navigate the season ahead. Ideas with Gabe Lyons is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at myfaithradio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.